Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They do tend to be mainly art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Patricia Cardozo's 2002 film, Real Women Have Curves. This is really a feminist coming-of-age classic for me. I first saw it when I was a teenager, and I loved it so much, and I still love it, and I'm really glad I could revisit it and talk about it for the podcast. This episode is personal. It's emotional. I actually even started to cry when I was editing it. I wasn't quite as emotional while I was recording it, but when I went back and was listening to it, I got really emotional. So this is an intense episode and probably one of the most personal episodes I've ever done. I talk about the exploitation of immigrant labor. I talk about the political dimensions of this film. I talk about how it intersects with my own life experiences of working in a sewing factory, you know, being working class, struggling with my own body issues. I go really deeply into how the film looks at body image and beauty standards, and that's a really important aspect of the film. So I go into so many things, the mother-daughter relationship, just everything. This is an in-depth dive into the film, into the background of it, everything. So I hope you'll stick around. I hope you'll listen to the full episode and I definitely hope that you'll get something out of it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can access rewards and extras like merchandise and extra episodes. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a big old shout out to my patrons, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for your support. You make this podcast possible. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. I would love that. It would be so helpful to me if you would leave a review. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you can send me an encouraging message or just interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Head and Films, and you can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So first, I'm going to talk more generally about an experience that I had recently of re-watching one of my favorite films. It's called The Double Life of Veronique by Krzysztof Kieślowski. I wanted to talk about my feelings and my emotions re-watching the film because I tend to watch it every year because I just love it so much. And then I will dig into Patricia Cardozo's Real Women Have Curves. I just want to talk a few moments about something that I recently did. I have certain films in my life that I like to rewatch on a regular basis. Usually I'll revisit them annually 
every year. And those tend to be the films that were really formative for me. I first got interested in art house cinema, I would say around 2011. That's the time when I got very, very obsessed with European art house cinema. And the film that triggered that for me was Chris Marker's La Jetée. I have an episode about it. This film was just unlike anything I had ever seen, made of still photographs. And it intrigued me and it made me want to go deeper and learn more about French cinema and art house cinema. So that was a really big awakening for me in 2011 and 2012 was all about exploring cinema. I watched films by Ingmar Bergman and Andre Tarkovsky and Agnes Varda and I just fell in love with cinema in a really deep way. And of course the internet allowed me to do that. At the time, the Criterion Collection was on Hulu. It's not there anymore, of course. And Netflix had much more classic and art house films than it does today. And I just immersed myself in it. So at that time, I watched, like I said, La Jetée. That was a big one for me. And Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura. That was big for me. Abbas Kiarostami's Close Up. I loved that. And probably the most central director that I discovered around that time was a Polish director named Krzysztof Kieślowski. And he is my everything. He is my all-time favorite director. You don't hear a lot of people name him as their number one director, but for me, he is. His films are, I guess you could say metaphysical, but also spiritual, but not in the way that you might think. They explore chance and intuition, and instinct, and the unseen connections between people. His films are deeply intimate, and personal, and emotional. And I think if you're someone who's not already interested in Art House, or maybe you are, maybe you are where I was in 2011, where you're starting out, and you're wondering, well, what's a director that's accessible to me? I think Kishlovsky could be a really great place to start. But I can only speak from my own experience, that because of the emotional power of his work and the intimacy in it, I think there's so many feelings in his work that you don't have to be some really academic, brilliant film person that as a layman, as an everyday self-taught cinephile, maybe like I am, his work could be an access point for you. He just, he's my everything. I've basically seen all of his work. I've seen everything except some of his early documentaries, really. I've seen Decalogue, The Three Colors Trilogy, The Double Life of Veronique, Camera Buff, Blind Chance. I, I've just seen, I've seen just about all his films. The one that I come back to constantly and that I usually watch every year is The Double Life of Veronique. And I've done an episode about it. This is one of the most important films of my life. It is the film that introduced me to Kishlovsky and it really includes so many of the big themes of his work of chance and coincidence and intuition and mystery. His films are about really the mysteries of life, the the things that are unspeakable, the things that are intangible. It's really about two women, uh, Veronica and Veronique. Veronica is in Poland. Veronique is in France. These two women look exactly alike. They're played by the same exact actress. 
and Veronica and Poland ends up dying, and Veronique starts to feel grief, and she doesn't understand why. And different things happen in the film. I'm not going to go through everything that happens. I urge you to seek it out. I urge you to watch it. It's like, it, it takes on this idea of what if we did have a doppelganger in the world, right? And what if there are other people that look like us? What if there are people that have similar lives to us that, and we don't know about it and just all these mysterious things because things like that actually happen in the world where people who have never met have a lot of things in common or have very similar lives and how do you explain some of these things or think about people who have said when a loved one died right at the moment they died they themselves felt something like a mother felt something when a child died but in the moment, she had no idea. That's the kind of stuff that Kishlovsky looks at. His films on paper do not make sense. If you read the script for The Double Life of Veronique, it would probably sound absurd. When I try to tell the plot of it, it sounds absurd. But the genius of Kishlovsky is that he takes that material and he puts it on screen and it is pure cinema in a way because the story doesn't make sense through any other form. It doesn't make sense on the script. It wouldn't make sense as a book, but it makes sense as a film because of the filmic language that he creates. These rhymes, these visual rhymes, the the happenstance, the coincidences, the way that Veronica and Veronique are connected to each other. He can create that through the film. So it's this magical, beautiful, almost unspeakable film. And I was able to treat myself to the Criterion Collection DVD of the film. I got it used on eBay. Don't underestimate used stuff on eBay. It's in wonderful condition, and I'm so glad I have it. It includes commentary by Annette Ensdorf, and I talk about her commentary in my episode on The Double Life of Veronique as well. But I want to talk about re-watching the film, because I watch it every year. I try to watch it every year. And I was just thinking about, I mean, as I was watching it, so many emotions and feelings were spilling out of me. I was thinking of myself back in 2011 when I first watched the film. And I think in a lot of ways, I'm always in search of that feeling. I find it really difficult to watch new releases or current films. I'm just going to be honest. It's why I don't cover them that much on the podcast. Because after you watch something like The Double Life of Veronique, as an example, it is just really difficult to watch something from today. The level of artistry, of of genius, of beauty, of magic is different. It just is. Or if you watch an Andre Tarkovsky film, or if you watch an Ingmar Bergman film, or even Agnes Varda, right? Like Agnes Varda and all kinds of great female directors as well. Something like Daughters of the Dust. I think that's such a gorgeous film by Julie Dash. And a lot of these films were like made in maybe the 90s and before. You know, film cultures changed a lot in the 2000s and the 2010s. And it's just really hard for me to watch newer films. I'm not saying that none of them are great. Probably my favorite film of the 21st century so far is The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. And I think if you like Terrence Malick or if you like Andre Tarkovsky, I think you would really like Krzysztof Kieślowski. I think they're all dealing with emotion and these intangible things. And I do feel like 
when I, every time I watch a film, every time I watch a film, there is the possibility of revelation and there is the possibility of transcendence. Not every film makes me feel the way that the double life of Veronique does, but I think as a cinephile, and I don't know if it's the same for other cinephiles, I do feel like I'm like constantly in search of that high and it's so rare, but I'm constantly in search of these films that um, electrify me or awaken me or give me that feeling of magic and it's a rare feeling. I would say that the films that do give me that feeling are the ones that I have to cover on the podcast that I have to talk about in some way because they're they just become lodged in me and I can't pry them out. They become this permanent part of my brain and my body and my life and my memories. And I I think that is maybe what distinguishes a cinephile from a non-cinephile, from someone who just watches films and enjoys them and it's nice entertainment. And I think for a cinephile, it's a completely different level of engagement and love. It's like this love affair with film. That's what I feel. And it's not something that I had my entire life, but I think that it started in me in my teens, probably. Maybe earlier, maybe those early days, those nights when I was watching Turner Classic movies and and watching old Hollywood films. And maybe I didn't quite understand what, what I was feeling. But then as I got older and it it just started to develop and deepen and and now you know these these are films lodged inside of me and Annette Ensdorf in her wonderful commentary on the double life of Veronique I actually loved listening to the commentary it felt like somebody was in the room with me watching the film with me <laughs> Annette Ensdorf just has so many insights into Kishlovsky's work and she wrote a book about him that I hope to read soon called Double Lives, Second Chances. She talks about how a girl wrote a letter to Kishlovsky and basically said that the double life of Veronique made her feel like maybe there was something like a soul, that maybe the soul existed. That's the power of Kishlovsky cinema, I think, is that he makes you feel like there is something otherworldly. There is something greater than us as you're watching the film. And I would say the only other feeling like that that I get is when I listen to the music of Tori Amos. Tori Amos is my everything when it comes to music. I think we all have that person or that band. For some people, it's whoever. And it's just their number one, where they they listen to everything they've ever made, even the bootlegs, even the not the greatest performances, but they just listen to everything and they devour their music and they're obsessed with them and they buy everything they put out. And for me, that's Tori Amos, where I've just, she takes over my life and so many of her songs just have changed me and moved me. And when I'm listening, listening to them, I feel like I'm accessing something greater than myself. I feel this transcendence, this, I know it sounds ridiculous, but higher power in a way. And I'm not religious. I'm an atheist, but she makes me believe. I mean, sometimes some of these songs, I feel like, well, there must be something greater. And and that greater thing must be the thing that she is in contact with and that she connects to through the music. And I would say the same about Kishlovsky. And that girl that wrote him that letter, you know, the double life of Veronique made her think that there was something like a soul 
that could exist. And I would say that watching The Double Life of Veronique, the film itself feels like it has a soul. And that's strange to say, because it's not a human. It's, it's a product. It's a film. And I understand that this may sound ridiculous to some people listening, but you feel like there is a soul in the film. I know a film is, is a constructed, manufactured thing. That it's the sum of many, many parts that have come together. It's the actor's performances. It's the music. It's the script. It's the art design and the staging and the costumes. And it's all these things that every person has made a different choice. And Kishlovsky has okayed that choice. And he's part of that. And he has made certain decisions to create the film. And he's edited it. And he, it is this created thing. It's, it's not real in a way, but it is. And yet it feels magical. And it feels like there is a soul inside of this film. I don't know how else to describe it. And that's always the strange thing about cinema or even a book, right? When you're reading a book or you're reading a poem. If you, when you're interacting, engaging with any kind of art form, it's just words on a page, right? It's, it's just these sounds in a song. And yet they take on this otherworldly power. They take on this deeper meaning. And it's like, how do you describe it? How do you put into words how art affects you? And for me, that's what Kishlovsky does, is that it's it's more than just a film. There's a soul in it. There's something deep and wondrous and mysterious about it. And I just feel like I'm always searching for that feeling in a film. And it might be rare, but I think when you come across it, those are the films of your life. Those are the films that, that keep you going, that make you feel alive, that make you feel human, that connect you to your humanity. And maybe they make you feel connected to the world and other people as well. And they have a lasting impact on you. It's like this vibration within you that never goes away. I mean, I know that I think about The Double Life of Veronique all the time. I think about certain films all the time and they come back to me like memories of my own life. But they're films. <laughs> they're they're not my memories, but I create memories through the act of watching them. And I love how the double life of Veronique really travels with me that I watched it almost a decade ago. And so much in my life has changed since then. And yet I can still access those feelings and those emotions. And it still makes me feel now the way it made me feel almost 10 years ago. So it's hard when you come in contact with that kind of art to to watch the things being made today. I, I don't want to put down modern film. I know that there are some films that deeply move people and mean a lot to people. And I understand that. But... I don't know. I think I'm just looking for something else when it comes to films. I'm not obsessed with watching all the new releases and all the new films and so few of them speak to me. You know, I'll read a review of a film or something and then I'll watch it excitedly because I have these expectations in place and then it does nothing for me. It doesn't affect me at all. It doesn't stay with me. And I guess you can't expect every single film to do that. I think that's too much. And I don't just watch films to have a transcendent moment, though it's a big part of it. But sometimes I'll watch a documentary because I want to learn more about something. I want to learn about a writer that I love or a social issue in the world. So we go to cinema and films for a variety of reasons, sometimes just for escape and joy. 
and then other times for a deeper experience, a more spiritual or transcendent experience. And I just find that Kishlovsky gives that to me and that there are certain directors that give us that and how lucky we are to have it how grateful I feel to the art that Kishlovsky created and I just wanted to linger on that for a moment and talk about rewatching the film how much it means to me and and really the value of rewatching something in our world today sometimes we just you know we read a book or we watch a film we go on to the next I'm the exact same way I'm not judging I I watch hundreds and hundreds of films every year but if, if there's a film that stays with you, I would investigate that and reflect on it and maybe rewatch it. I find that with The Double Life of Veronique, you don't get everything in the first viewing. It took multiple viewings for me to notice certain things. And then, of course, Annette's commentary uh, showed me so many other things that I didn't even know about and that I had not put together. Because not everything is spelled out in a Kishlovsky film. You're, you're having to assume things and put things together together yourself. Sometimes it can feel like a mystery or like this puzzle and not all the answers are provided. You have to create those answers for yourself or maybe create meaning as you're watching the film. But that's why he's my favorite director. I just, I adore him. I could talk about him all day, but that is why I periodically come back to his films. And at least every year I try to watch The Double Life of Veronique. If not, certain films from the Three Colors trilogy and I'd, I'd like to rewatch the Decalogue. So his work is just so rich and, and it's just beautiful to come back to it and to relive it and to feel all those feelings again and re-watching can be its own kind of pleasure it can be this new experience and, and this um you create this even stronger bond to the film I think so I really love it and so now I'm gonna talk about real women have curves Curves is a film that has been part of my life for so long that I think you can almost take films like this for granted. It came out in 2002. I would have been around 13 years old at the time. I, I can't tell you when I saw the film. I didn't see it in a theater, but I'm sure I saw it on TV, you know, a year or however much time elapsed once it was on television or wherever it was shown and it has this second life on tv it's one of those films that you can find it on a lot of different channels which is great that doesn't happen for all films you know some films just sort of uh, stay very inaccessible but with real women have curves it's been on tv a lot of people know it it's it's this famous film it's i think a beloved film but maybe we don't give it enough of like the serious attention that it deserves. And I want to just talk about this film. I love it. I've loved it since I was a child. It's a comforting film in a way because I did see it when I was young. And so now I'm, you know, almost 30 years old and thinking about myself at that age when it first came out, thinking about my 13-year-old or 14-year-old self, thinking about my life back then, thinking about what this film meant to me. 
because I feel a lot of personal connection to this film. I feel like my own life overlaps with several of the plot points in the film. Even though I have a very different life than the main characters, I am a different ethnicity, I come from a different background, but there are things in terms of gender and class and body and all kinds of things in which I do connect to these characters. And so I'm so happy to be talking about this film. I've wanted to talk about it for a really long time because it's very meaningful for me. It affects me very deeply. It's just a really personal film for me. And that's why I wanted to cover it and explore it. And in the process of doing this episode, I've learned so much more about it. Because when I do an episode, yes, I'm talking about my personal feelings and reaction and connection to a film. But I also do a lot of research. I want to learn about the director and the cast and everything to do with the film as much as I can. And I like to uh, weave it into my episode. And so it was really fascinating to read interviews. There's really not enough stuff out there about Real Women Have Curves. To me, this is like a classic coming-of-age story. I mean, this is a classic film, and it's a rare film. What's unfortunate is that it came out in 2002, and since then, there really has not been much representation of the Latino community. And I was thinking about this recently, how around that time, we actually had a few films that centered Latina women. We had, in 2002, we had Real Women Have Curves. Then we had Julie Taymor's Frida, which had Salma Hayek in it, a biopic about Frida Kahlo. And a few years before that, in 1997, we had Selena, about the famous singer Selena Quintanilla, who I love. I I absolutely love her music. And I'm a big fan of that film as well. So we had stories about Latina women, but in the years since then, we have not had them. And that is obviously a result of the larger systemic issues in Hollywood, of films about minorities, films about people of color, films about women as well, and women of color not getting made. And directors of color, especially women, not getting the opportunities that they should I mean, Real Women Have Curves should have, it's its obviously a landmark film, but it really should have led to an explosion in films like it. You know, films about the, the Latino community, and we just didn't get that. We're still struggling to get more diversity in Hollywood and in the film industry and in the types of films that get made. So I want to give you a little bit of background about Real Women Have Curves and its source material. It's actually based on a play by the same name written by Josefina Lopez. Her original play was first performed in 1990, and it's set in East Los Angeles in 1987. The play focused on five of the characters, five women in a sewing factory. Anna, our main character in the film, Estella, her sister, Carmen, her mother, Pancha, and Rosalie, who were workers at the sewing factory. That was the original play. Obviously, there were changes made by George LeVu, who became the screenwriter, and he decided that they should focus on Anna and make it more of like a coming-of-age story, 
and and bring that sort of universality to it. And I think that was a good a good choice to focus on Anna because really the play is focused on Estella, who's the older sister. She owns the factory. She has a lot more responsibility. She's at a different place in her life. But obviously focusing on Anna just sort of opens up more possibilities and gives it that coming of age story that is so important, I think, and that really speaks to young women like it did to me when I first saw it as a teenage girl. Real Women Have Curves, the play, really comes out of Josefina Lopez's experience of being undocumented, and she herself had worked at a factory. So it's a personal play in that way, but it's also political. And to me, the film is also deeply political. I think the film can get sort of reduced to like, oh, body positivity, you know, a girl feeling good about her body. And yes, it absolutely is. And I'm going to talk about that element of it, which I think is so radical and revolutionary and beautiful. But I don't want to ignore the political dimensions of this film and how important those politics are even today. I just want to make that really clear that this is a personal film. It comes out of personal experience, but it's also very political and we should not ignore that because there is an atmosphere in our country today in 2019 when I'm recording this episode with President Trump in power and a man who basically got elected through anti-immigrant rhetoric and hatred for immigrants, particularly Hispanic and Latino immigrants. That is the fuel that has made his presidency possible and that makes it so dangerous and toxic is that there is this growing hatred, this growing animosity towards immigrants in America and particularly Mexican immigrants, immigrants from Latin America, Central America. And I myself have watched it and I've watched it develop you know, I live here, I see this, and I live in rural America. I live in, in areas where I guess you would say somebody like Trump is very popular, although I don't think we should generalize about whole swaths of this country. My parents raised me to be very liberal. I would describe my parents, who are white and working class, well, my father was, he's passed away, uh, but my mother as well, um, I would describe them as Democrats. You know, and they lived in the rural South, and that's where they raised me. So not everybody in these areas hold these views. And these views permeate our country, or else somebody like Trump could not come to power if it was just particular areas of the country. It's across the entire country. But there is no denying the power of that rhetoric in particular places. And, you know, I I live in the rural South, and so I'm well aware of of these views, having countered them myself, heard them from people's mouths. They're alive and well, and I just am baffled by it. You know, I'm just baffled by the the hatred for Mexican people of of immigrants, and that's serious and that's real. The, the people's lives are being affected by this. People who have lived in this country for decades are being sent back to countries that they know nothing about. It's violent. This is violence. 
This is hatred. This is life and death for some people. And that cannot be ignored. And so I think that films play a very important part in humanizing people, in telling stories that may not often be told. And so I think it's really important that this film is about a Latina young girl, a teenage girl and her family, her immigrant family, her immigrant parents. We don't see enough of these stories. And maybe if we did see more of these stories, there wouldn't be this level of hatred. I don't know. I guess I'm sort of a bit too idealistic that film can change the world, right? Or or something like that. Um, but I think that maybe it can change our conceptions of things or change our ideas about certain groups of people. I like to think that, I guess, that that art can be transformative, that it can change us in some ways if we're open to that. And so imagine a world where we had lots of Latino stories and and what that what the world could look like, you know, a world that values and respects immigrants. What a beautiful world that would be. And so that's why I think Real Women Have Curves resonates even more today. And Josefina Lopez's story matters today. And I want to share a quote. Uh, she talks about where this play came from. And I, what I love about Josefina is that she took this experience that was degrading and difficult and painful, you know, being undocumented, working in a factory, issues with her body. She didn't just take it. She said, I'm going to take these experiences and I'm going to make a piece of art out of it. And I'm going to do it so that I can tell all the other women like me and all the other people like me, you have value and your lives matter. And I love that about Josefina. And she is amazing. Go and read her interviews. She is just, and, and she made a feminist play. And I think the film as well is a feminist film. That is the way I would describe it. And I would say it's one of my favorite feminist films. It is, it's personal, but it's very, very political. So Entertainment Weekly did this sort of, uh, this looking back at Real Women Half Curves 15 years later. They did this in 2017 and they talked to Josefina and she just gave this great quote. She said, quote, I was undocumented for 13 years. I wanted to write a play to affirm my humanity because I felt so dehumanized being undocumented. I've always had issues with my weight, and one of my teachers told me, not in a mean way, that she thought I was a great actress, that I had the ability to play Juliet and Lady Macbeth, but no one was going to cast me as the ingenue if I didn't lose weight, because only thin girls get the lead. Men write the roles and direct the movies, so I had to adhere to those standards. Otherwise, I'd always play the side character. I thought, okay, if I lose the weight, then I'm going to be told by casting people that I should change my name to a white name, change my hair color. If I do this, I'm going to have to give up who I am to be an actress. I refused to do that. The problem isn't that I'm undocumented, Mexican, working class, or overweight. The problem is society, unquote. And that is a battle cry 
I think. And that is what the film shows us. That's why the film is political. Because while it's personal, it does not individualize the problems that the characters are going through. It doesn't say, well, it's just, oh, that's the way things are. That's the way life is. It fights against that and it resists that. And it says, no, society is the problem. Racism is the problem. Classism is the problem. And it does it without like taking a hammer and beating you over the head with it. It does it without having these big words that only academic people will understand. It does it without going into feminist theory, right? It does it in this very accessible, real, raw, relatable way. That look at these women slaving away in this factory. There's a reason for it. Because they're not being paid enough. Because their labor is being exploited. It it shows that. And as I go deeper into the film, I'll talk about that. But that is, for me, the central power of the film. Is that it's personal, but it's not purely personal. It also looks at the political. It also looks at systems of power. You know, I don't want to get too academic or feminist theory here, but it is looking at at these larger issues that are outside the control of the characters. And I think that's really important. That's why feminism has been so powerful for me because I grew up working class. I grew up as a woman, obviously. I grew up with weight issues and I was, you know, I was dealing with the sexism, dealing with classism, dealing with all kinds of things when I was younger. And there was always this part of me that said, but it's not me. There, there's something bigger happening. There's something that isn't right about this. It isn't right. I, I realized that more as I started to learn about feminism. And feminism became like a lifeline for me. Because for me, feminism is not really about equality. It's not really about, oh, men and women should be equal. Well, what kind of men and what kind of women? Because a white woman is in a very different position in the world than a black man right? We have these different privileges. We have these different positions in the world. We have these different experiences. We have intersectionality where we can have all, we can have different oppressions that we deal with at the same time that a Latina woman is dealing with, with gender, but she's also dealing with racism and, and all of that. So there, there are other issues at play. It's, it's, for me, it's not about equality. For me, it's about ending those oppressions. You know, it's about ending poverty. It's about ending discrimination. It's about ending patriarchy. It's about ending all of these things because of my own experiences that I, I had. So that's something that I love about this film is that I think it can introduce that kind of thinking to a young audience to say, well, look at, look at this factory, look at this atmosphere, look what's being done to these women, look at, through Anna, look at the different pressures that are on women, and how it's, it's beyond them, it's these larger forces at play. So I I think that's a powerful aspect of the film. 
and obviously the play. It took 11 years for this film to get made. And we really have this film because of a woman named Maude Nadler at HBO. She is the one that finally gave the green light to the film. That's what it came down to. It came down to this one woman at HBO saying, we're going to tell this story. And I think this is a great example of why we need women in positions of power. You know, women who can greenlight these projects, women who can say, yeah, this story needs to be made because when you get a room full of men, it's not going to happen. You know, it really takes women giving other women the opportunities to make these films and to tell these stories. America Ferreira, when she made this film, she was only 17 years old and she had only been in a Disney film up to this point. She was completely unknown. And I'll talk more about her performance, but I think she's just extraordinary in this film and really captivating to watch. I can't imagine any other person in the role, and this was a really a launching pad for her career. Lupe Ontiveros, who played the mother, she played Carmen Garcia. She also played Carmen in the play, and so they cast her in the film as well. I have to share some more quotes by Josefina Lopez because reading the interviews just gave me life. I was like, yes, yes. (laughs) I loved everything she had to say. So here's another quote from her about the story. Quote, it became a story about asking, what's the value of a woman? You're a masterpiece by God's design and you should feel proud of yourself. And that's the story I wanted to tell the world because that's what I wanted to tell myself. Growing up in this country, you're constantly shown that being white and thin is beautiful. Society tells women we only have value if somehow we have value to men. If men value us, if we have a function to them, then we have value. But I wasn't put on earth to be somebody's servant, to be someone's supporting character. I'm here to be the protagonist of my own story, unquote. And that's from that same Entertainment Weekly story about real women have curves. And then from another interview, Josefina said, quote, I'm sick of Hollywood telling us constantly that women's lives don't have value or that our stories don't matter. I've been in this business 30 years and this is a beautiful movie, right? But I could have gotten 10 more done by now. We've been waiting for so long. I think this story is unfortunately so relevant because it's about women's lives mattering, about the fact that they matter. That's such an audacious statement, unquote. Oh, Lord, Josefina giving me life. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> it, it is. And I think that when, as a young girl, I came in contact with the film, that's what's so powerful to me about film. It's, it's this art for the masses. It's very different than books in that way that so many people watch films and think about the life this film has taken on on TV. Think about all the different interactions and contact with the film that's been made. Other little girls like Josefina Lopez, other girls like me, who might watch this story, watch this film. And I do know that it made me feel good. It made me feel like the character of Anna. I just, I loved the way that she fought back. I loved the way that she believed that she mattered, that she didn't let her mother or other people's views of her and her body stop her. She was so powerful in that way. 
And I'll talk more about this as I talk about the different scenes because there are several scenes in this film that just seared into my brain and um, are just so important to me. But I love, I just love the way a film, it, it can change the way we see ourselves. It can change the way we see other people. It can be revolutionary in that way. And that's what I think this film is. I just, re-watching the film for the podcast was really wonderful because I don't think I had watched it in a while. It had probably been a few years. And to really sit down and look at it and analyze it and think about it, you just see all the richness. You see all the complexity. You see all the beauty. And of course, I, I noticed all of that when I was a teenager. But I notice it even more now that I'm almost 30 years old. So this film came out in 2002. It was directed by Patricia Cardozo. And the screenplay was written by George Lavu, based on the play by Josefina Lopez. It stars America Ferreira as Anna Garcia and Lupe Ontiveros as Carmen Garcia, her mother. And there's also her older sister Estella and there's her father and there's various women that work at the factory. So I want to talk a little bit about my personal connection to the film and the ways in which my life sort of intersects with the film, I guess, and and the story. I myself have worked at a factory. In other episodes, I've talked about my life and there's a lot of pain in my life. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot that I've been through. My father died in 2006 I was 16 years old at the time. It was a devastating loss. It's one that I still struggle with that I have not recovered from. It completely, it was cataclysmic. That's the only way I can put it. It exacerbated the anxiety and depression that I had already struggled with for much of my life and that I continue to struggle with. And it also plunged my mother and I into poverty. We did not have a lot of money when my dad was alive. He was actually on disability and we were basically living off disability checks. My mom had lost her job because she had had to take him to a lot of doctor's appointments. And so she was not working at the time that he died because she had gotten fired. They said, you've missed too much work, but there was nobody else to take him to the doctor. So we were just put in a really impossible situation. And so we were really struggling financially. And then he passed away and obviously it got even worse. I was only 16. I had to finish high school. I did. My mom eventually got um, a job at a factory. It was a sewing factory. And instead of going to college when I graduated high school, I stayed home and I got a job at a factory so that I could help my mom out. That's what I did. I was also struggling deeply with mental illness. There was no way I was going to be able to go to college. It, it, I was completely uh, shattered as a human being. I was having panic attacks I had agoraphobia, I had depression, I had really bad anxiety, and I still struggle with those things even now, 12 years later. I had no insurance, I had no access to any kind of help for me to get through it. So I was just basically in a really dark place. I was in hell. I mean, I would describe those years immediately after my father's death as just infernal in a way, that I was just in this hell, I was in this black hole of 
depression and just everything, grief, profound grief, loneliness. I was, it was really me and my mom. It was just, we had each other. I don't, I still don't know how we've survived. I I just, I don't know. I mean, it's been more than 12 years now and I just don't know. I don't have answers for you how I've made it to this point. Obviously, she is the reason that I go on and art, you know, books and films. That's how I go on because I've been through a lot. So I went to work at the factory a little bit after I graduated high school. And it was a sewing factory and it was a really bad experience. It was dehumanizing. I was making minimum wage. I think I made about $7 an hour, maybe a little bit more at the time. And that was really hard because you're working intensely hard in a place like that. There were no windows and your productivity was put up on this bulletin board So if you had low numbers, if you were slower than other people, people could see that and you would be, uh, you know, chastised for being slow. And I was one of the slower people, I'll be honest, because this was my first job ever. This was my first experience in a factory. It was just incredibly dehumanizing and it was punishing on your mind and on your body. And I developed some health issues when I was working there. And I've basically never been the same. Like my health, my health has never been the same since I worked at that factory. I, like a third of my life at this point, more than a third of my life, I've had health issues because of working at that factory. It was so traumatic and so terrible, that experience. So when Anna goes to the factory and is working there, I have a lot of sympathy for that because I've been in that situation and it's part of the reason why the story resonates with me. Another personal connection I feel to the film are the body issues that Anna has. I've struggled with my weight since I was probably five years old and I I don't want to go into a lot of detail or depth about it because it's just deeply painful for me. But I have talked on the podcast repeatedly about being seen as ugly and unattractive in the world. I have struggled with my weight. That's the way I want to put it and describe it. So I see a lot of myself and Anna in that way because I had family who were really harmful when it came to my body. My mom's parents were very cruel about my weight and they would even tell me you know oh if you lose weight we'll pay you they were going to pay me so much for every pound that I lost that was really terrible and my mom's father my grandfather I don't really refer to him that way because he never acted like a grandfather towards me he basically since the time I was a child never spoke to me He did not acknowledge me. He did not have conversations with me. It's like I did not exist to him. And I still don't. I've not received birthday cards. I've not, when I graduated high school, I don't think he sent me anything. I basically have no relationship with him. And I don't know why. (laughs) Obviously, I was a child. I did nothing wrong. I suspect that it was my weight and that it was the way that I looked. Because I had cousins who were thin who did not get treated that way. They got treated very differently than I did. And I always felt 
treated differently by my family on both sides by my father's family and my mother's family I just I felt it you know it's it's the kind of thing it may not be somebody sitting there calling you names sometimes it can be unconscious on the part of people they don't realize they're treating you differently but they are that's sometimes how weight discrimination works is that people don't think they are but they are from the moment I was a child my mom's father just did not speak to me he used to take me to school and we would sit in the car and he would say nothing to me he would not say a word to me and at times he could say really hurtful things like really passive aggressive stuff he would watch me eat I would feel watched every time I ate food at their house So this is what I lived under, (laughs) not to mention the stuff that you go through at school and with people. And as a result, I was just a very lonely child and I'm still a very lonely person. It was really hurtful. It still is. I'm going to be honest here that the wounds of childhood, the wounds of what I felt as a little girl, the way my family treated me because of my weight, the way that boys at school treated me because of my looks you know, reducing me to a joke, pretending like I was invisible or I didn't even exist. I would say that I'm almost 30 years old and it still hurts. That it it left such deep scars in me that I don't know how I'm ever going to change it or overcome it. Because the dehumanization and the sense of worthlessness that it makes you feel is corrosive and it is soul destroying and most of my life I have basically just felt like I'm nothing like I'm worthless like I'm a piece of shit because of it it's affected everything about me it's affected my confidence it's affected how I relate to people I think it has really made me even more anxious and depressed, honestly. I think it affected my mental health as well. It made me not really want to take care of myself or care about myself at all. So it it has this ripple effect. We talk about we talk about this stuff of like the people's bodies like it's nothing. Like, oh if you're teased Oh, if you're treated bad, you'll just get through it and you'll be okay. We don't talk about how it can completely destroy you. That it can cause depression. It can cause anxiety. It can do tremendous, irrevocable, lasting damage because of how you are treated when it comes to your weight and your body. And I don't think we talk enough about that. We don't. I like that this film really shows how terrible it is to be treated that way because of what you look like and I love that Anna fights against it so I definitely related to that aspect of Anna and also Anna's desire to be a writer that really intersects with my own personal life that ever since I was a child I loved to write and I loved books and I wanted to be a writer my life didn't go the way that Anna's went you know at the end of the film she gets this scholarship to Columbia University and she goes off to New York City to start this life it's this really hopeful happy ending and that didn't happen for me so I I still don't know I still don't know if I could call myself a writer I don't know like 
it's it's something I used to feel that I was and yet I I really question it now and I think my confidence my confidence really has not been high as a writer personally because I worked at that factory for a few months. It was not a job that lasted long because in 2008, the recession happened and they laid off some people at the factory and I was one of them. And I got to thinking, you know, I really don't want to have to work a job like this ever again. It was so punishing on my body and it was so dehumanizing. And I thought maybe I should start thinking about going to college. You know, maybe I should try to get out of this and change things and I started that process like Anna kind of, you know, I started thinking, well, maybe I should go to college. I certainly had the grades. I was a straight A student throughout high school. I was in different honor societies. I took advanced placement courses. I was a very good student. I I was a high achiever and I tried out for some different colleges and I tried out for a writing scholarship at a college and I didn't get it. I didn't even like advance (laughs) And I have to be honest, it was crushing. It was so crushing. Like, I felt like I had been so much, I had been through so much, you know, losing my dad, working at the factory and dealing with health issues and, you know, what had happened to my body. And I felt so old. I mean, I think it was like 18 or 19 at the time. And I just felt ancient, you know, everything I had been through, I still feel ancient because, It's just unreal, everything that's happened. And by then, my grandmother had also died. My mom's mother had died. And then my my mom's uncle, my mom's brother died. So within this three-year period, my father died, my grandmother died, and my uncle died. And I was just, I tell you, I was in a really dark place. I was terrified. I was just falling apart in a lot of ways. And then I'm trying to deal with like going to college and well what do I do you know I wanted to be a writer I wanted affirmation you know I think that's what I wanted like I wanted that scholarship so bad like I just wanted I wanted like approval I wanted somebody to say you are worth this you deserve this you're a good writer and it didn't happen and so it was like this this blow to my confidence. And I don't think I've ever really been the same since that happened, you know, and it it meant that I wasn't going to get a scholarship, you know, I wasn't going to get a full ride. And it was just heartbreaking. But I eventually did go to college. I went in 2010. And um, I did major in, in literature and English. So and I also majored in women's and gender studies in college was really sort of my feminist awakening when I realized that I was a feminist, I learned more about feminism. I read Bell Hooks. I read Audre Lorde. And these were really powerful voices for me. Angela Davis. Um, these women just changed my life. And feminism changed my life. And I've never really been the same since then. And I, I just went deeper into it when I was in college. So, um, I mean, I guess it worked out. I don't know. I mean... I just had this dream for myself of being a writer. That's what I wanted to do. And and when that didn't happen, I think ever since then, I've just felt really lost. You know, I've just felt like, what do I do? You know, do I really have anything to say? Am I a writer? Like, I think I've just questioned myself for a long time. 
and it's affected me in a lot of ways. And so that's a part of Anna that I just really love. I love that she wanted to be a writer and I loved that sort of writing was her way out. It was her way to a different life, a a life um, that she had always wanted. And so I really love that happy ending for Anna, but that is something that I connect to about her. So now I want to talk about various things about the film. I feel like I've just talked about myself way too much, but I guess I just want to explain to you, I want to make it clear why this film is like so important in my life that my own experiences, no, I'm not Latina. I'm, I I have very different experiences. I'm from the rural South, the rural working class area. I am white, um, but there are parts of my experience that intersect with Anna's and that make this story really resonant for me and that make it really powerful. But at the same time, because of Anna's unique identity, it opened my eyes to the struggles and the experiences of the Latino community in the United States and immigrants who live in this country too. Seeing this particular story While I had connections to it, I also saw the differences between me and Anna, and I got to hear her story and learn about her life and Estella's life and Carmen's and her father, and and it opened up a a community to me. You know, it made me more compassionate. It made me more empathetic to what immigrants go through in this country, what Latino people go through in this country. And that's why the film is also so powerful. Like I get, um, I get worried, you know, when people call a story universal. I talked a bit about this in my episode about Moonlight. That you know, when we when we say that stories about minorities are universal. It's often like we're trying to erase perhaps the gender politics, the racial politics and other things in the story that we're trying to just uh, ignore those things. And I think it's very important that we not ignore those things that I, I just worry sometimes when we use that term, it's universal. In some ways it is universal. But it's okay. It's okay if a story is specific. It's okay to talk about the parts of a story that are not universal, that are very unique to a particular community or particular group of people and their struggles and the things that they deal with. And the treatment of immigrants and Latinos is important in this film. And and it's important that we have representations of their lives. And that's what the film gives us. So the film is about Anna Garcia, this teenage girl who she's just graduated high school. It's the summer after she graduates high school and she goes to Beverly Hills High School. She has her mother, Carmen Garcia. She has her older sister, Estella Garcia, and she has her father. And I think some cousins live with them as well. And her relationship with her mother, Carmen, is very complicated, very painful in a lot of ways. And Anna is this complicated character. She's not the most likable character, right? Like she's petulant. She's maybe she is stuck up at times. She is not going to college right out of high school. At least she doesn't think she is. Her parents want her to work. They need her to work. And so they they want her to go work at her sister Estella's garment factory, the sewing factory where they make dresses. And at first, Anna is really, she doesn't want to. 
She doesn't want to go work at this factory. But the film is about really that summer of her life, this sort of transformative summer for Anna, the way that working at the factory will change her, the way it will help her mature as a person and and see her sister in a different way and at times see her mother in a different way. It's also about her needing to leave this place. That's sort of the most painful part of the story is her needing to leave and that conflict between leaving and staying. I mean, I think we have these these sort of tropes or these expectations that when people graduate high school, they automatically go to college, they leave, they go to another state, they go as far away from their family as possible. And I don't think that that's everybody's story. And I don't think it has to be everybody's story. You know, I, I like Anna, I had to work. I, I was not going to leave my mom. She was alone. She was really on her own in a lot of ways. There's no way I could leave my mom. <laughs> I wasn't going to do that I, you know, after my father's death. And at that point, her mother had died too, because this was in 2007 when I graduated high school. So, so a lot was going on in our lives. So I was not going to leave. So I went to work at the factory, just like Anna goes to work at the factory. And even when I did go to college, I went to a nearby college that wasn't really far from home. It's not like I went to another state or something. I understand maybe that conflict in Anna of like, she wants to stay in, I don't really think she wants to stay. Her family wants her to stay, but she wants to leave. She wants to have a more independent life. All of this comes out in her relationship with her mother, Carmen. Her mother is very derogatory about Anna's body because America Ferreira in the film, I don't, I don't know if she would be considered fat. And when I say fat, I mean that as a descriptor of a body type. I mean it as a way, as part of the fat acceptance movement, the body positivity movement, that there are fat bodies and there are thin bodies. And I use fat as a way to reclaim that word and to take power out of that word. The way communities of color have reclaimed words, the way that uh, queer people have reclaimed words. That's how I use fat. I don't know if you would call her fat. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess she would be considered maybe chubby or a little bit overweight or a little bit larger than other girls. I don't know what the consensus is about if she would be considered fat. I sort of call her voluptuous, you know, that she is a bit larger than other girls, but I just don't know if, if you would consider her fat. I don't know. But her mother considers her fat. Carmen does consider her fat. And for Carmen, Anna is excessive. Anna's boobs are too big. Her body is too big. And at one time, Anna says, you know, my mom thinks I'm fat and ugly. So to her mother, Anna is fat. And Anna is ugly to her mother because of her weight and because of her body. And so the the relationship between Anna and Carmen is really central to this film. And throughout the film, Carmen will say things about Anna's body. She'll, like, they throw this graduation party for Anna when she graduates from high school. She comes home and they've done this surprise party. And, and Carmen's telling her that she doesn't need to be eating any cake, that she's bigger than the cake. That's just one example. She she calls her Gordita. She just calls her names throughout the film and really degrades her and demeans her 
And, um, and really Carmen has a particular sort of old fashioned, very traditional view of women and the value of women that a woman's worth is in being a mother and being a wife and cleaning the house. And that's what she wants to prepare Anna for. She's not interested in Anna going off to college and having an independent life. So it's not just Anna's body that Carmen has a problem with. It's also Anna's feminism. It's Anna's desire for more than that. Anna does not want to just be a wife and mother. She doesn't want to just take care of a house and take care of children. There's more that she wants out of life. Carmen is also very obsessed with her virginity. That Anna be a virgin. That Anna not give herself away until marriage. She's just very traditional in that way. And it's it's based on how she was raised. And the thing about Carmen, you know, she's played by Lupe Ontiveros. And Lupe is a larger woman. And Anna brings that up in the film. She says, you know, you're big too. Why, you know... Why are you putting me down when you have a large body? You have a body type. Well, first of all, I would say that even fat people internalized fat phobia. You know, fat people feel bad about themselves often and feel ashamed. And they often look at other people that way. I was reading an article recently about fatness and stuff like that. And it talked about how, you know, in a lot of places say on college campuses or wherever there are different groups like pride groups in a way like you know people who are african-american will hang out together and or you know gay people like there's groups that are about celebrating your identity right you don't have that for fat people like you don't see fat people getting together and celebrating who they are and celebrating their identity. It doesn't happen because there's so much shame attached to being in a bigger body, to being overweight because of the way that it is stigmatized and the way that the medical community talks about larger bodies. If you are larger and you feel good about yourself or you're confident or you try to love yourself, that's seen as bad. Because if you're bigger, you should always be hating yourself. You should always be dieting. You should always be trying to lose weight and trying to lessen your body and reduce your body. You should never feel good about your body if you're bigger. And so the fact that Anna embraces her body is very radical and political. I would I would say that it is political in that way. Because she's living in a society that at every turn tells her, you should hate yourself. You should feel bad about yourself. You should try to lose weight. Everything about you is wrong and disgusting and gross. Because that's what fat people are told constantly. And so for you to not do that is profoundly political and radical. And for you to do that, you have to resist an entire society. You have to just resist everything. And that can be really hard. And she's even having to resist her own mother. Her own mother, who is also fat. But for Carmen, she says, well, I have a husband already. So it doesn't matter. But you see, Estella and Anna don't have husbands. 
they are defined by the fact that they're not married. Their whole worth is based on getting a husband in the eyes of Carmen. And this is the way Carmen has been raised. And so, and I think I talked a bit about this in my episode on Autumn Sonata by Ingmar Bergman. Because I think that's such a devastating film about a mother and daughter. And I sort of see that play out with Carmen and Anna. Is that Carmen has been taught certain things growing up as a woman. She has been socialized in a certain way. And so often women hand that down to each other. That they're not able to love their children sometimes in the way that their children would want because they can't overcome sort of this social conditioning, these things that they've been told. You know, think about the way that my grandfather treated me. You know, he had probably, you know, he had been learning all these things about larger people, you know, and about especially women. You know, women are so defined by their weight and so defined by what they look like that he was not able to love me. Because I didn't fit that ideal. I was not in the body that is said to be lovable. That is labeled as lovable. And so I cannot be loved. And that's what I have to live with every day. And that's what a lot of people have to live with every day. Is that we live in a body that has been deemed worthless. We live in a body that has been deemed ugly and unlovable. Unworthy of love. And so when people look at us and they see our bodies, they're not able to give love to us. They may try or they may not try, but they they have been conditioned in such a way. And I think the same thing can happen within families, obviously, that sometimes mothers can hand down, especially when it comes to weight and it comes to our bodies. Think about, you know, mothers who diet, mothers who put their children on diets. We have very toxic relationships with our bodies and with food, especially in the United States. I mean, it's just terrible. And so often parents are just not able to love their children, especially if they're fat, especially if they're larger. It's heartbreaking if you really think about it. It's almost like, I know Carmen loves Anna, but she's not really able to give her the kind of support and compassion that Anna needs, you know, and that's just the truth. But it's probably due to the things that she herself has been taught. And and it is. You know, it's the way that she's been conditioned. It's the way that she's been raised. But isn't that the most heartbreaking aspect of it? Is that women, women can do this to other women. That often women are some of the harshest critics and judges of other women. Because we're in competition. We are taught to be in competition with them. We are taught that our worth is based on our looks. And we are very critical of ourselves. And then we are very critical of other women. Because Carmen does not just say stuff to Anna. There's a scene in the film where Carmen sort of attacks Poncha. And Poncha works at the sewing factory. And and blames her uh, and, and says something about her weight. And Poncha is almost in tears over it. So Carmen has been conditioned in this way. It doesn't mean that it's not toxic. And it's obviously wrong. But this is the way so many women have been taught throughout their lives. That beauty and thinness and your weight. That is your worth. That is your worth. And you should maintain that at all times. And if you are a woman that goes against that. If you are a woman who is different from that the way I am, the way Anna is, you are seen as deviant, you are seen as dangerous, you are seen as wrong. 
right? And there's a big cost, I think, to not fitting in in that way and to trying to resist it. The the body shaming, the fat shaming, the diet talk, the diet culture that we live in in, in the United States is just so toxic to me. I, I think it's terrible. I rail against it. I hate it. But I am at the mercy of it. My own worth is determined by the way that I don't fit those standards. I do not fit beauty standards. I do not fit those things. I am seen as ugly. I am seen as unattractive. And there's a cost to that. There is. But I think it's heartbreaking the way that not just society can treat us when it comes to our bodies, but also the way our own family our own friends can treat us. And it's it's part of the reason why I don't really trust people too. Is that I feel like, can I ever really trust someone? Can anyone ever really care about me? Can anyone ever really understand my experience when they themselves have been inculcated with the diet culture and with fat shaming and fat phobia? That it's in everybody, isn't it? And so when someone looks at me, can they ever see a human being? Can they ever see me as human? That's the the struggle of my life, the conflict of my life, is can people see me as human? And that's what many people in this country struggle with in different ways. For me, it's through my weight. But for a person of color, I'm sure they must think, can a white person ever look at me and see my humanity? Or an immigrant? a Latino immigrant in particular, they may feel like they are dehumanized, that people cannot see their humanity. People who are disabled or who have a disability, they may feel dehumanized. So there are many of us in this country who experience dehumanization in very different ways and and through very different identities. And so I just wanted to talk a moment or quite a bit about America about Anna's relationship with Carmen, because it's such a central part of the film, is her, it's almost like Carmen articulates the views of society. She's almost the embodiment of society, of society saying what beauty standards are and, and what's expected of women. She's sort of articulating all of those toxic ideas about women and our bodies and our lives. And Anna has to resist that and Anna is trying to fight against it and America Ferreira I mean she's 17 years old but she's such a firecracker in this film and she's so powerful and she has a really great presence I think and I think she's beautiful I think she's very gorgeous America Ferreira I've always loved her (laughs) I think she's such a good actress and even more than that somebody you can really look up to she's someone I get the sense who cares about the projects that she does, cares about the movies that she does. And she talked about in interviews about this film how it really set the course for her, gave her an idea of the kind of projects and the kind of films that she wanted to be involved in and the kind of stories that she wanted to tell. So I get the sense with America Ferreira that it sort of gave her a political awareness, a political conscience, a political consciousness. And she's gone on to do really great work. And I just all have always loved her in this role, the way she walks, the way she inhabits her body in the film is incredibly powerful. And, you know, Anna herself as a character is so complicated. She's 
confident. She talks back. She resists. She's political. She can be hurtful. She can be hurtful towards her mother, towards Estella. She hears the things that Carmen says about her body, but she refuses to really give in to it. And and she just has this powerful sense of self. And America Ferreira just brings her to life beautifully. And I have this ongoing thing that I talk about of like the a cinema of the unruly woman. I love unruly women. I love women that are sort of outside the bounds. Women that don't fit beauty standards and don't fit our expectations of women and who are difficult, who might be unlikable, who stand up for themselves and who are sort of deviant in some way and different. And I think Anna sort of fits into that. She fits into this idea of an of an unruly woman. I love that about her. And a lot of the film, and now I want to talk more about the factory setting and what happens at the factory, because this is this is a really important part and crucial part of the film is the factory. We don't see a lot of films that take place at a factory. Like it just it doesn't show up in cinema very much. And I like that pa- Patricia Cardozo focuses on the factory and she shows the machines as they're making the dresses. It's a hot factory. There are windows unlike the factory I worked at. So there is light and there's only just a few women that work there. You know, because of my own experience working at a factory, this matters to me. The experiences of people in factories matters to me. And I do think it should be represented more and it's not. It's just not. It's a difficult environment. It's hot. It's hard work. I like that this film spotlights women's labor and the labor of immigrant women. I really like that a great deal. I like that we see that and that it's made visible to us. Uh, The work that goes into making clothing, to making dresses. And I wanted to talk a moment about a documentary that I saw probably maybe a year or two ago. And it connects well to Real Women Have Curves and it's called Made in LA. It's a documentary from 2007 and it It's sort of similar to Real Women Have Curves a bit, and it's about three Latina immigrants, and they work at a sewing factory, really a sweatshop, in Los Angeles. And I'm looking at the synopsis for the film because I saw it so far back. They, quote, they embark on a three-year odyssey to win basic labor protections from trendy clothing retailer Forever 21. An intimate, observational style made in L.A. reveals the impact of the struggle on each woman's life as they are gradually transformed by the experience. Compelling, humorous, deeply human, Made in L.A. is a story about immigration, the power of unity, and the courage it takes to find your voice, unquote. Yeah, it was about these women at a garment shop. They make clothes for Forever 21. They do these protests it focuses on three of the women and they engage in these protests to get better working conditions and better pay and all kinds of different stuff. And it's really about low wage labor. It's about the exploitation of undocumented immigrants. It's about these women's lives, the experience of working at the factory and working really at a sweatshop 
and the struggles that they go through, but also the way that they fight back against Forever 21, against a corporation. And they protest and they try to change things. And it's this amazing documentary and Real Women Have Curves definitely reminded me of this documentary. And I think that it would be a good idea to pair them, you know, to sort of put them together because they both are looking at the source of cheap clothing, the labor that goes into making them. You know, we tend to think of a lot of these goods as being made in China or being made overseas. But some of these items are made in the United States and they're made off the backs of immigrants immigrants who are exploited and not treated well. And that experience is shown in Real Women Have Curves, where Estella, they can't even turn the fan on in the factory. It's hot. It's oppressively hot. They can't turn the fan on because dust would get on the dresses. And you see Estella struggle to keep the factory going that she needs in advance because she can't pay the rent and she can't pay the power. And she goes to the woman at the manufacturing company to try to get money, to try to get an advance. And she's basically blamed. And she basically says, well, this is your fault. This is on you. I'm not going to give you the advance. And Anna is so mad about that too. She goes with Estella and they meet that woman So we don't see a lot of stories like this about the real everyday struggles of people who work in the garment industry, people who are immigrants, people who might be undocumented immigrants, their labor. I mean, something that stuck out for me in this film was the way that it looked at immigrant labor and the way that that labor keeps this country going, the the way that it remains invisible and unseen because... Anna's mother works at the factory. Her father is a gardener or a landscaper for very rich people. At one time, Anna goes to see him and there's like a huge house in the background where he's working, the yard he's working on. So you see these class differences. You see these power differentials throughout the film of here they are. Here are these women working for these big companies that sell their dresses for $600, but the women only make $18 an hour for dresses that are being sold for exorbitant prices, but they don't get any of that. They're, they're being exploited. And here is Anna's father working as a landscaper for very rich people. And he can't even afford to send his daughter to college. She has to depend on winning a scholarship. So the the way the film looks at class is also very resonant. You know, it came before the 2008 recession, which made things even worse. The income inequality, the gap between the rich and the poor, or hell, just the rich and the working class is huge. We we barely have a middle class anymore. There's people who are doing great and then there's people who are struggling and living paycheck to paycheck. And the film makes that visible. It makes that labor and that work visible. But at the same time, it gives it dignity and it gives it respect. Anna looks down really on the factory. She doesn't like having to do it. For her, it's a a temporary job. It's just something she's doing for a little while so that she can go on to another job or get into college because she starts that process of filling out college applications. She has this teacher, Mr. Guzman, 
who encourages her to apply at Columbia University. He says he knows somebody in the admissions department. She needs to write a personal essay. And so really without her parents knowing, she starts to try to get into colleges because he's encouraging towards her. So for her, you know, she's going off to college. She looks down on the factory. She calls it dirty work. She calls it a sweatshop. She says that the women are cheap labor, that that are being exploited. You know, she says all of this in front of the women and she's mad about things and she has every right to be mad about things. But in the process, she's really insulting these women. She's insulting Estella, Rosalie, Pancha, Carmen, her mother, And she may not mean to, but that's what she's doing. And she doesn't realize, I guess, that she's insulting them. And what we see in in several scenes, or one in particular, is that they feel a sense of dignity about the work that they do. You know, Estella fights back and says that she's proud of the work that she does. And she sees Anna as spoiled. And eventually Anna does apologize, you know, for for calling it dirty work and for like looking down on it. But I think it's really important that there's a way, I guess, to critique this stuff without putting people down. Because I think, I think there has become this schism or this disconnect between people who have a college degree, people who might go to urban areas or to really nice jobs in cities, and then people who are left behind, people who might just have a high school diploma, who work at Wendy's, you know, who work in fast food or work in retail. They don't have a college degree. And or I would say there's a difference between people who are maybe in white collar jobs who are working in offices and things like that. And then people who are doing more manual labor, what you would call blue collar jobs, janitors, you know, fast food workers, retail workers. There's really like people look down on them like, oh, you know, that's all you do. You should be trying to better yourself and blah, blah, blah. But really nowadays having a college degree is not a guarantee of a job. There are plenty of people that have college degrees who struggle to find employment, who struggle to find good jobs, because in general, the economy is just so terrible for anybody who's not rich. You know, more and more there's freelancing, more and more there's the gig economy, right? And you see millennials have less wealth than their parents. Millennials have more debt. They have less wealth. They're struggling living paycheck to paycheck. They're still living with parents because they can't afford a house with all the debt. They're delaying marriage. They're delaying having children because they simply can't afford it because there's not good jobs anymore with benefits. And you see the the reduction of unions, you know, All kinds of things have piled on and happened to millennials and to those who are younger than us as well that have made our lives increasingly precarious, financially precarious, and difficult. And that's not being talked about enough. Like millennials are seen as like entitled and spoiled, but we actually have much less wealth than our parents. And we're actually dealing with a lot of structural systemic issues that make life really difficult and scary for us, honestly. But the, so the way that the film looks at class is still very important and it's still very relevant to the world that we live in now, where a lot of labor is still being done by immigrants, undocumented immigrants are still being exploited, even while they're being demonized 
by certain factions, especially on the right, especially in the GOP and the Republican Party. And so a really powerful part of this film is the way that it makes that labor visible and the labor that women do. That's that's really important. And I wish, I really wish more films, you know, would be set in a factory, would be set in a fast food place, would be set in, in more of these blue collar working class environments because it's very rare to see it either on television or in films. It's incredibly rare even today. But something that I love about Anna's experience of working at the factory is the way that it changes her and it also transforms her relationship with Estella. That sort of in the beginning of the film, her and Estella are not getting along too well. Estella thinks of Anna as very spoiled and entitled and and things like that. And I don't get the sense that Anna thinks too much of Estella either. So while an important part of the film is the mother-daughter relationship, you know, Anna and Carmen's interactions. I think this is also a film about sisters, about two sisters, because Anna goes to work for Estella and through working at the factory, Anna gets a better sense of what her sister goes through. She sees Estella trying to keep the lights on. She sees her trying to pay people to keep the business going. But she also sees Estella's dreams. Um, Estella is working on her own clothing line in her spare time. She does like drawings and stuff like that. Anna sees the sacrifices that her family has made. And maybe that wasn't quite, maybe she wasn't quite as aware of it until she goes to work at the factory. But she sees Estella's struggles and she sees what Carmen's been through. You know, Carmen has worked at a sewing factory, I think she says at one point, for 38 years. She's worked hard. She, she's she been through a lot in her life. I don't think Carmen is totally demonized in the film. She's difficult. <laughs> you don't totally understand uh, everything that she says, but you do see that she's more she's more of a traditional person and that she has not had an easy life either. And that, you know, she expects things for Anna because that's what was expected of her. But Anna and Estella, I feel like, grow a lot closer throughout the film. And that is just something really beautiful to me. I mean, one of one of the most touching things is near the end of this, the film when Estella brings this dress to Anna. And it's this beautiful red dress and she says that she made it just for Anna. She made it specifically for Anna's body. Because she wants Anna to know that beautiful dresses aren't just for skinny girls. I mean, I thought that was such a beautiful moment between these two sisters, you know. And a really powerful part of this film that I really want to linger on for a little bit is Anna's sexual awakening. I love the way that this film looks at sex and portrays sex. It's very feminist to me. And I love it. (laughs) You know, Carmen has this idea that Anna needs to be a virgin. That's what's important. And Anna really resists that idea. She resists this idea that a woman's worth is wrapped up in her sexuality and being a virgin. She says, I think at one time, that, you know, there's more to a woman than what's between her legs. 
And so there's a very important storyline in the film between Anna and a boy named Jimmy. And he's a student at the Beverly Hills High School that Anna attends. They go on a few dates together. Anna has to sort of, she can't tell her parents about it. At one point, her grandfather, uh, they pretend to go to the movies. And he goes to the movie, I think, and then she goes off with Jimmy. They, They have some awkward sort of dates together and... But I think this was an important part of the film to look at Anna's relationship to boys. So on their first date, I think it is, they go to this restaurant and and it's very awkward. (laughs) Um, And he says that she has a beautiful face and she says, just my face. And that is something that a lot of larger girls have to deal with. That people will say things like, oh, you have a pretty face, but they won't say that you're pretty you know, because of your body. Or they'll say like, oh, you have pretty eyes or something like that. Larger women are often reduced in that way. You know, that not all of us, not all of our body is beautiful. Just our face or the thin, some thin part of us, I guess, right? Or something not even attached to our body, like our eyes or our hair. And so she's very hesitant. You know, she's sort of suspicious about it, really. She She doesn't have a sense of her sexuality, really. I don't get that sense. And she's had a lot of negative comments said about her body. But I think through Jimmy, I think she does start to feel sexual. She does sort of connect to her eroticism. And that's a really beautiful part of the film. And I love that there's um, this one scene where she goes and buys a condom Like, I love that. She goes and buys a box of condoms, like, at the convenience store or something. And she asks the cashier woman, like, oh, well, what should I get? And I was like, wow, this is such an open, beautiful way to talk about sex. Because we have such a toxic way of viewing sex here in the United States, too. You know, the way we view bodies is terrible. And then the way we talk about sex is terrible. We basically are obsessed with it, but then want to deny that people have sex. Like, that's the weird part is that we kind of want to act like, oh, teenagers don't have sex when they do. And we should be teaching them how to have sex in a safe, respectful way you know, and, and we don't do that. And then they go on another date and Anna's talking about how Carmen, her mother, basically thinks she's fat and ugly. And Jimmy says to her, oh, you're not fat, you're beautiful. And she rolls her eyes. And of course, there is the implication that you can't be both. You can't be fat and beautiful. That in order for you to be beautiful, you can't be fat, right? People mean well when they say stuff like that. But they kind of don't realize that they're creating a dichotomy. That beauty and fatness are mutually exclusive. And that's really what I think so many people in with fat acceptance and body positivity are trying to fight against. That you can be both. And I would argue you shouldn't even have to be beautiful. Like your worth as a person, your worth as a woman should not be predicated on being beautiful. Do I think we should expand our ideas of beauty? Absolutely, of course. But I also think that I should have the freedom from beauty. (laughs) Like, why do I have to be beautiful? Why can't I just be me? Why can't I just be Caitlin? 
like men's worth is not wrapped up with beauty. Men can be a lot of things. They don't have to be handsome. They can be powerful. They can be smart. They can, men can be a million things and beauty doesn't have to be number one on the list. But with women, that is the the totality of us is our beauty. And our beauty is always connected to thinness, to being thin. And I have a problem with that. I have a problem with sort of the tyranny of beauty, the obsession with beauty. I have a problem. I have a big problem with that. But I absolutely support people who want to embrace beauty, who want to redefine beauty, who want to say, I am beautiful as a way of making themselves feel good and giving themselves a sense of worth. I have no problem with that. But for me personally, it's like, it's okay if I'm not beautiful. I should still be treated like a human being. So I love the the love scene between Jimmy and Anna. And they go back to his bedroom and they're kissing and she brings out that condom. <laughs> I love it because we, we so rarely get sex scenes that show safe sex and safe sex practices. And so to me, that's an, another reason why this is a feminist film for me is that it shows sex in that way that, hey, Let's be safe about it. Safety matters. And I love that message. So I think that's great. I mean, another scene that comes to mind is a film that I've covered called Dogfight by Nancy Savaka. It has River Phoenix and Lily Taylor in it. And there's a love scene between them and their teenagers where you see a condom. And it's this wonderful, affirming love scene. And I see the same thing with Real Women Have Curves. I see the same thing with Anna and Jimmy. Is that this is a positive, a sex positive and affirmative love scene. You know, two teenagers enjoying one another's bodies. Mutual respect, mutual consent, mutual pleasure. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film, really. It's it's also one of the most powerful scenes and lasting scenes of the film. That it has stayed with me for years. That after, you know, he turns the light off and she has him turn it back on. And I can still see her standing in front of that mirror and she's naked. The light is on and she says, see, this is what I look like. She wants him to see what she looks like, to see her body the way that it is naked. And it reminds me of how important it is that we are seen and appreciated and loved for who we are. That matters. And Anna, you know, so much of her life has been dealing with her mother, dealing with society that tells her, you're not thin enough. You're too much. You're too big. Cover up your body you know, cover yourself, cover yourself. And here is a moment in which she's standing in front of a mirror. Here's this guy and she's not hiding. And she's saying, here I am. The intimacy of that moment is just so beautiful. And I love the fact that she's looking in a mirror and she's looking at herself through her own eyes, not through her mother's eyes, not through society's eyes, not even through Jimmy's eyes, but her own eyes. And it's about him, it's about him seeing her, yes, but it's also about her seeing herself in that moment and owning it, owning her body and really seeing herself. And then he comes up behind her and he says in Spanish, how beautiful. And it's just, can you imagine the power of that scene for somebody that's 13 years old? 
somebody who might look like Anna, who might be Anna's size or Anna's ethnicity, you know, to see something that beautiful and affirmative and positive. And my God, imagine if we were surrounded by those scenes. Imagine if, you know, the majority of films that you saw had that message in it. Imagine the way you would feel about yourself. Imagine the way women would feel about themselves. You would see a sea change, I think, if you had those kinds of representations, those kinds of portrayals. Like, imagine the world we'd live in if there were more films like this that showed a woman in this way, that showed a young girl in this way, loving herself, embracing herself, and showing a man loving her because that matters too. You know, that when you're that age wanting to attract boys, unless you are queer, unless you're a lesbian and you know it at that age in your teens. But for a lot of women, you know, it's about attracting men and so much of your worth lies with men. With men seeing you, with men desiring you and wanting you. And when you don't get that, I think you crave it and you you want it. Because so many women define themselves and define their worth in that way. But that's not, for me, what the scene is about. You know, Anna Anna loves herself, loves her body, whether Jimmy's there or not. That's why she turns the light back on and shows him. She's not tentative. She's not anxious. She's not scared. She's not, oh, oh, what do you think of my body, Jimmy? It's not about that. It's about, here is my body here I am. It's, I don't think it's about his approval. I don't, I don't think it's about, oh, do you, do you agree? Do you think I'm beautiful? She's not trying to get his approval. She's just standing there in her power and in her beauty and in all of her, her nakedness and just like, this is me. And I still think it is just one of the most powerful scenes. I mean, watching it again, all these years later at a different age, at a different point in my life, It was still just so beautiful and so intimate and just everything that I want out of a love scene. Like, I just love it so much because many of you who have listened to other episodes, I've talked about sex scenes in films and how a lot of scenes between heterosexual characters just leave me cold (laughs) because they often center male pleasure. They often center the male gaze And they're often very degrading and yeah, they're often just really degrading towards women and they objectify women. And that I have found usually in queer films, queer love scenes, I much prefer because there's a parity between there. There's an equality between them. There's a balance in power. There's a give and take. There's a generosity. There's an intimacy. There's a love and connection And finally, you know, I find it in a heterosexual love scene. I found it in Dogfight by Nancy Savaka. I told you that's a beautiful love scene between River Phoenix and Lily Taylor. I love it. And then also here in Real Women Have Curves. I would say that these are love scenes that I find beautiful and erotic and just perfection. And Anna having sex, she does it because she wants to. But I also think that it is... It's a way for her to claim her power as a young woman because she knows that her mother believes that virginity is the most important thing. And I think Anna having sex, choosing to have sex, is a way of her saying, I control my body. I do what I want with my body. I don't 
I'm not interested in being a virgin. I'm not interested in living up to this standard for women. I will I will have sex if I want to. It's really sort of act of ownership over herself and her body. Because her mother is very upset when she realizes that Anna's had sex. She like, she's just so upset about it. And that's when Anna says, there's more to me than what's between my legs. And Carmen slaps her. She's so upset because Carmen believes that you're supposed to save yourself. But this is a transitional thing too. This is about Anna really going from a child to a woman because she says to Carmen in that scene, she says, I'm not your baby anymore. So it's also about her proclaiming her new self in a way. Yeah, like I'm not a child anymore. You don't control my body. I control my body and I do what I want with it. So it's it's an act of power too, I think. Her choosing to have sex, doing it on her own terms, with her own pleasure in mind, her buying the condom. She's very active in that. She's very assertive. She has a great deal of autonomy in that scene. Like she's in control. He's not controlling things. I feel like Anna is. And I think that's a very powerful thing too. And then, of course, I want to talk about the scene in the factory. This is just so crucial. So they're in the factory and it's hot and Anna takes her shirt off. She's so hot. They can't have fans because it gets dust on the dresses, right? So Anna takes her shirt off and she's in her bra and Carmen says, oh, you look awful. And Anna says, I happen to like myself. <laughs> And Anna just says so many great things in this scene. This is a very famous scene in the film. And it's one that was sort of complicated for America Ferreira. And I just want to talk about that for a moment. That at first, America, she did not want to take her bottoms off. She was not interested in that. (laughs) She struggled with the underwear scene. Now, something that I love about Patricia Cardozo and that she really wanted to do for the scene was to respect the women who were engaging in it. And so the women were, they were allowed to choose underwear that they liked, that they felt good, and as Patricia puts it, that they uh, felt beautiful in. And And Patricia said that, quote, each actor showed the costume designer pictures of underwear they liked. Then she went to the store and bought many different things, And they all chose from what she bought, unquote. So it was very important to Patricia that all the actresses feel comfortable. Because this is a very vulnerable scene of women in underwear, women who are not a size two, who know that taking their clothes off is a very risky, vulnerable, scary thing. Because there is the possibility of ridicule. That the audience is going to laugh when the women take their clothes off that the audience is that the audience is going to judge them and put them down and say mean things about them so patricia handled it with care but america struggled with the scene she didn't mind taking her top off but she didn't want to take her pants off and that was something that she struggled with she was contractually obligated to do it she had to do it but she she struggled with it And that scene itself, and really the film itself and the way it looked at America's body, was 
a little bit hard for her the way that people responded to her. She said, quote, for me being a young woman going through my own journey with my body, having it seen and talked about and projected upon by people watching this movie, if anything, sort of stunned me for a while. Because that in and of itself sent a strong message about how I should feel about my body. And it was a much longer journey for me to get to a place where I felt empowered about my body the way that film helped others feel, unquote. So I think maybe America is saying that she wasn't quite as comfortable with her body as maybe Anna was, Anna the character, because America is only 17 at the time. And so she herself was sort of struggling with her own body and the way that other people saw it. And so I think that sort of complicates it a little bit, but it's interesting to think about of this actress playing this very confident character, and maybe she herself doesn't feel all that confident. She has a very different relationship with her body, but of course she has to use her body to be the character. And so she has to do the things that Anna would do, even if maybe she doesn't feel totally ready for it. And so much of the film is about Anna's body. And I can see how that would be difficult for America Ferreira to deal with, that all these people are commenting on her and what she looks like and what her body signifies and symbolizes to them. When for her, it's just her body. It's just, you know, who she is. And so the the scene where they take off their clothes, it's just, it's incredibly powerful. It's unforgettable. It's sort of a cornerstone of the film of these women doing this and being accepting of each other instead of critical of each other. Because I think some women would be very scared because of how other women would look at them and view them. You know, think about if you wear a bathing suit at the beach, you know, you're nervous about how other people see you and especially how other women may judge you. And I love how Anna says that, you know, she might want to lose weight. But at the same time, she says, quote, my weight says to everybody, fuck you, unquote. So for Anna, her body is like a statement. Like her body is is a way to say fuck you to society. To say, I'm not going to live within your beauty standards. I'm going to be who I am. She finds power in that. And some women do find power in that. And she says, quote, how dare anybody try to tell me what I should look like or what I should be when there's so much more to me than just my weight, unquote. I mean, these are the things that make Anna probably one of the most feminist heroines, feminist protagonists that we have in film, what, for the last 20 years or even more than that in the history of cinema. I mean, this kind of character is incredibly rare. Her political stances the way she inhabits her body. Everything about Anna is incredibly radical and incredibly just powerful. And I love, I just love Anna. I mean, she really is one of my favorite heroines. She's just absolutely sensational. I mean, we talk so much about what the superhero films like Wonder Woman and, you know, things like that. And it's like, for me... A character like this is so much more powerful for me personally, you know, of a real person, an everyday person who has this power and believes in herself and is confident and tries to resist the really damaging, toxic messages that she has to encounter on a daily basis. Because I remember when I was a teenager and how hard it was. And hell, it's hard now. I mean... (laughs) I know I'm an adult and I should be able to handle it better, but 
I still struggle with feelings of worthlessness, feelings of, you know, all this that stems a lot from my childhood and those scars and those wounds. And so I guess I think I'm even more in awe of Anna because I was nothing like Anna at her age. You know, I was not like, fuck you. You know, I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't know how to. You know, the body positivity movement wasn't really around back then in 2002 and in the early 2000s when I was coming of age as a teenager. But Real Women Have Curves was sort of, I think, the foreshadowing of that movement, right? That so many of the messages in it are right in this movie. And I was exposed to that pretty early. I mean, I always had a strong sense of myself. I always did try to resist beauty standards. I always did, like Anna, fight back against that and feel like, well, it should be about who I am. It should be about my thoughts and what I have to contribute. My worth should not be based on my looks or my weight. I certainly always felt that. You know, there was always this feminist in me that was like, why am I being reduced to this? Why am I being treated like shit because I'm not thin? I was always mad about it and I was also hurt by it and I felt dehumanized and I felt lonely and I felt unwanted and unloved and it just it left us it left a lot of scars for me and it still affects the way that I interact with people it it affects so much of my life even today so a part of me obviously does wish that I could have been like Anna and I could have been stronger I could have been more resilient I could have fall back against those messages instead of letting them destroy me because I feel really destroyed by it. I just, you know, I've had the self-hatred for most of my life and I wish that I could have been more like Anna and loved myself, right? That I had not let all of that just destroy me, but I did. I mean, I have to be honest, I'm not like Anna. I haven't been strong. I haven't been resilient when it comes to these messages about my looks and my body. It has cut me right to the bone. It has just absolutely harmed me and damaged, deeply, deeply damaged me. But I'm I'm a lot like Anna with those views of like, why am I being treated this way? Why am I being dehumanized? Why are my grandparents wanting to pay me to lose weight? Why am, why is this happening? You know, why can't, like Estella says, why can't I be taken seriously for what I think and not what I look like? So, and then all the women in the factory take their clothes off and they're showing their stretch marks and their cellulite. They're laughing together. They're dancing as they listen to music in their underwear. It's such a feminist moment. It's a beautiful moment. It's a fuck you moment. Like, yeah, don't you think? It's just so like, fuck you. I'm gonna do what I want to do. This is my body. I'm not gonna hide it. It's not about the male gaze at all. It's female, it's not female nudity, but it's, you know, women with not a lot of clothes on. And the male gaze is completely removed from it. It's about women being in the company of women and being supportive and accepting of each other, except maybe for Carmen. (laughs) Oh yeah, not, yeah, Carmen gets upset. Carmen like storms off Anna's mom. She's like, I'm out of here. Y'all disgust me. She just really hates it. (laughs) And Carmen just can't change. I feel like that's 
what's so powerful about the film is that Anna does change. You know, she goes from sort of looking down on factory work, looking down on her sister, kind of. And instead, she sees the struggles of these women. She sees the dignity in the work that they do, the importance of the work that they do. And she sees how hard her sister works. I'm sure she sees it in her mother as well. But her mother just can't let go. She can't let go of these ideas of what Anna should be, how Anna should look, what Anna should want, what Anna should do with her body, how her body should look. She just can't do it. And so when the time comes for Anna to leave and to go to college, Carmen will not come out to greet her. She will not go to the airport with her. And so there is this rift between mother and daughter. There is like this unhealable thing between them. It's really painful. It's it's a hopeful ending and then it's not. It's like the rift between Anna and Carmen sort of deepens. I think some films would have tried to wrap it up in a bow. Like, oh, mother and daughter reconcile. You know, mother and daughter come together. And it's like, no, no, they don't come together. They are sort of irreconcilable in a lot of ways. That Carmen is very traditional, very judgmental. And then Anna is liberal. Anna is much more open-minded about things. And Anna wants to chart her own course, make her own path in the world. She goes to New York City, goes to Columbia University that she gets in. And she's going to be a writer or she's going to do something you know, with her life. And I loved how at the end we see her walking down the streets of New York City. She looks confident. She looks really at home in the world, like she belongs in the world. It's, that's a big deal to me. I certainly wouldn't just on my own go to New York City. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm this small town girl, like from the South, in the country, you know, I'm not a city person at all. It's just not who I am. And I I think it's amazing she does that. And I love how the film ends in a way, in a similar way as it began. Because in the beginning of the film, we see Anna walking and she's having to take several buses to get to Beverly Hills High School. Because it's this very elite school that she has gotten herself into somehow. And she has to take multiple buses. She has to walk a long ways. And Patricia Cardozo, it was really important to her to show a different side of East Los Angeles. Where the film takes place. She wanted to show it in a positive way. You know, I guess it tends to get reduced to gangs and and more negative stereotypes. But she wanted to show the the Latino community in a positive way. And you see that as, as Anna walks down the street. And you see different stores and different things like that. Different aspects of the community. So it's very much about Anna walking. Anna being part of this community. And then at the end, we see her walking in New York City. And now she's part of this world, this new world, this new life that is filled with so much possibility for her. And it's it's hopeful and it's beautiful. You, you get the sense that Anna's going to be just fine, that Anna is strong and smart and powerful and she knows who she is. She's just such a a wonderful heroine and a wonderful protagonist who's incredibly complicated and multidimensional. And I just, I love this film. And after I finished it, I was just like, why are there so few films like this? (laughs) 
I loved it so much and you know a lot of my life sort of intersects with Anna and then a lot of my life doesn't you know I didn't leave I didn't get out I'm still in the rural south I didn't I didn't get that writing scholarship my life didn't really take off it didn't really go anywhere or I haven't really become anything special or what I guess I dreamed that I would become. I've just been through a lot in my life and I've struggled a lot and I'm not sure how to overcome it. I don't know how to overcome it, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I'm not Anna. You know, I don't have Anna's strength or Anna's resilience. But I think she's a really, like, beautiful character. You know, I just... I guess part of me wishes I could have been like her. Like I could have loved myself and believed in myself and gone out into the world and really made something of myself the way that Anna does. And instead, I feel like I've just sort of been stuck. Like I've just been stuck since my dad died. It's just like stuck in the pain, stuck in the grief, stuck in the the depression and the anxiety and the fear and the black hole that my life became. And I, I don't know what to do about it or how to change it, but I guess this podcast is a little bit of light <laughs> in the dark and it's it's a space for me to share these things and to talk about these things and I know I've gone on and on and on about this film. This episode got really long, but it's a film that means a lot to me, that has had an impact and an influence on my life. It has resonated with me for obvious reasons, for very personal reasons, because of my own experience at a factory that was that was punishing and difficult and gives me a very particular perspective on the film. Like, I know what it takes for those women to go into that factory every day. It's hard, and it's just, (laughs) I mean, if I could go back, I would not want that experience. Because it was just so um, damaging to my health, damaging to my soul in a lot of ways. And then also Anna's desire to be a writer, and Anna's struggles with her body, her struggle to love herself and so there's so much that I connect to in the film but I also think that it's deeply political and that the political messages matter and that this is a story about a Latina woman a young Latina woman and stories like that need to be told and we need more stories about Latina women women of color all kinds of different women and god I just think about a world where we have so many more films like this like Josefina Lopez said you know I could have made 10 more films in the time since this has been released it's been almost 20 years where are the where are the films where are the stories change is happening but at a very slow pace and it needs to be faster it really does so i'm grateful for josefina lopez writing her play grateful for patricia cardozo who directed this film america ferrera who gives just the performance of her life <laughs> and that started her career This film means so much to me and it's very significant in my own life and in my childhood and my own coming of age. So I'm really glad I could talk about it and I hope that me bringing my own experiences to this episode helped. I hope that it gave you some new insight or provided a different way of seeing the film. So thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.